Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Hot on the heels of a less than perfect Labour conference came the Conservative Party conference from Manchester. With a backdrop of fuel crises, food shortages, staff shortages, how did the party that delivered us this Brexit bounty fare in their attempt to sell the message that Britain is building back batter, butter, or even better? Uh, joining me and Kerry this evening is Theo Davis Lewis. Hello, Theo. Hi, guys. So, looking at Tory Pie Conference, uh, what were the dominant themes of the conference and what were your sort of main takeaways, Theo? Well, you've given some of the, the thematic outlines there about build back better, build back better. You know, obviously this theme of recovery from, from the Prime Minister, it was all about ambition and sort of the, the optimist, optimism and the projections from the party, you know, that have been in power now since 2019, that everything's going really well. Uh, and we saw there was some sort of definition now to what levelling up means. That was in pretty much every fringe panel, conference speech, materials. And it was all about trying to define that slogan. I don't think they got too far, but definitely a bit more meat on the bone than previously, just because I think they just exposed the fact that it is totally for the North of England. This is one of my recent columns just to show that it's, it is an English project rather than a Britain-wide project. Uh, but in terms of other things, you know, from the Prime Minister's speech specifically, it, it wasn't much in there. It was just about jokes and sort of reasserting in the middle of this uh, literal effing crisis that, you know, this Prime Minister was very happy to joke and put on the Boris show. So still lots of slogans, a bit more definition to it. Looking to the future, everything's going to be fantastic. Perhaps Christmas will be cancelled, but we're not going to tell you that. On the whole, it was the Boris show again, and his disciples were very happy to follow it. On that, I've thrown Matt's script into the ear with this, but I, I felt exactly the same on the Boris speech. I, I think he was just playing to his audience. And I think one of the things that I took away from the conference was that they still love him. Doesn't matter yeah. what's going on, which we'll come on to, but he is playing to ready audience and he's got the communication skills to keep them happy. I think that's right. And also there is that strange contradiction then that some MPs might not actually like him, but they realise that he is their electoral asset. Because if you put any other position, any other politician in, in his position now as prime minister, could you really see the party leading the polls in such a way. I mean, I just think it is this mesmerising character that is Boris Johnson, and he's, he's got enigmatic appeal. And I think you have to acknowledge that. I mean, he's not... He's a huge contrast to Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford's leaders. Uh, but compared to other members of the party, other members of the cabinet, they've got nothing on him in terms of the performance and, and, the, qual and the, the, the political qualities that he has and he's developed over the last 20 years. Without Boris Johnson... Would the Conservatives necessarily win the next election? Possibly with Rishi Sunak, who's obviously the rising star. But he certainly, as, as Michael Howard is actually saying to me recently in an interview I gave, his former boss, obviously, saying he's never seen such a remarkable politician in the modern era. You look back in sort of you know, 19th century, uh, 20th century, there are figures that stand out. There's probably only been, uh, as if you take Anthony Seldon's classification of prime ministers, there's probably only been about seven or eight great prime ministers for different reasons, probably for Gladstone, Thatcher, Churchill in there. And there is the potential for Boris Johnson to, be, to go down as that prime minister because you've got to have events coming your way, so things like COVID, which he almost died, he's got Brexit done. So he is, for all of his faults, possibly on the, on the devolution question, uh, which we've well documented here, and, you know, in Wales, he's not necessarily as popular as he is in England. 
in sort of British history, we might look back at him as this as a remarkable kind of polarizing figure, but somebody who dominated the political landscape if he goes on until 2030 for over a decade, which I think is absolutely remarkable. And he saw that in Tory, Tory party conference as well. You know, you know, you talk about getting Brexit done, responding to coronavirus. You look at the Health and Social Care Committee report this morning, which says it was basically a catastrophe, the mm. UK government's handling of, of coronavirus. You look at Brexit, the fuel shortages, unnecessary pig coal, and then, then you go back into COVID and you look at the cuts they're doing to universal credit there, national insurance hike they're having to do to do in order to deal with the impact on the health service not not to be all partisan or anything but that would finish a that would finish a labor government but somehow boris has been a bit like teflon and the whole conservative party feels a bit like teflon with so much going on in the country this this conference felt almost a new a newsworthy and it it seems like that despite everything going on and all the various protests that were occurring outside their conference venue in Manchester, they seem to have had a good conference. How's that possible? Well, you're right, I think. And I, I'd urge your listeners to look at John Harris's column in The Guardian, which I think was spot on. And the headline kind of captures it. And as you're speaking, I just pulled it up again to remind me, which is Johnson will survive these crises, crises, obviously plural, because he can turn them into a story about Britain. Uh, and so I advise everyone to read that column because it is all about storytelling and they've had a good conference because, you know, you've had conservatives in power for over a decade now. And like you've articulated there, Matt, lots of these problems with Brexit have come under the leadership of a conservative party, but they've turning them and saying, we're going to fix our own problems. And it seems like as if people haven't noticed where the, where the source of the problem is, you know, Lord Frost giving a speech today in Portugal to tear up the Northern Ireland protocol. Uh, and it, it seems to go over people's heads. That this is a protocol that the government agreed and said it was a brilliant deal. And then you've got MPs like Bernard Jenkins on Newsnight saying, well, I was only saying it because we needed to get it done. So there's so many contradictions and that's politics for you. They've had a good conference because, again, it does come down to the leader. I think the prime minister you know, is is that enigmatic feel, a very a curious figure, I think, in British politics. And again, possibly to go back to you know your partisan point the Labour Party you know Kistama had a pretty good conference I mean I think the pundits over egged it to some extent but he didn't have a bad conference I don't think he, he in terms of if you're on his side of the political spectrum uh, he had a decent conference but you just can't compete with the showmanship and the the blase attitude I don't think of this current conservative party which isn't necessarily always ideological it kind of floats around as very pragmatic and using ideology whenever it suits so it is it is remarkably curious but I think the broader point I sort of make as well that it's possibly reaffirmed as that the Conservative Party is really now the party of England and we've got a very distinct kind of structure of politics now in Britain where you've got the Labour Party as the natural party of government in Wales, just natural. It's it's just what we're what we're used to now. The same goes for the SNP in Scotland, and it looks as if, after obviously years of sort of chopping and changing for over a century in England, obviously there's been Labour governments as well. That the Conservatives are really reaffirming their their position as the natural party of England. Three different nationalisms, of course, but that's another podcast. With everything that's going on, fuel shortages, tax raises, and things like that already, do you find any impressions anywhere Theo about any doubts coming from the conservative faithful well I think at the minute there is this 
really curious development now, and I think I'll take a different issue from the fuel shortages, but on, on levelling up, for example, lots of Conservative commentators um, that I've been reading over the last week as well have, and there's one particular good one in Unheard, which I, which I thought was sort of nailed, nailed it on the head, where it's this kind of Disraelian approach to everything, where obviously Disraeli, fantastic politician, arguably the Boris of the 19th century, uh, who didn't really believe in, in anything. It was all just going to what the public wanted to hear. And I think going back to the point about the fuel crisis and linking it to levelling up, the, the government is saying what the public I think wants to hear you know they actually were tweeting that there's no fuel shortages uh, and that's exactly what people want to hear but then you know the more that you say these things people start to believe it and I think with all of these policies now and conservative commentators you know some will just agree totally with what Boris says because they're disciples but others you know of course will start questioning you know whether they can get a grip and we saw over the weekend of course Kerry with Kwasi Kwarteng and uh, his battle with the Treasury. And that gives you more of an idea, though, about the internal politics within the government rather than concerns about uh, the actual policies. So I think you're right to the extent where, you know, I don't think there's any questions over the leadership in the sense that, you know, who, who else is going to take over? You know, Boris is firmly in charge. But there are, I think, Conservative commentators are picking up that this, this government is very happy to free flow across ideas, you know, sort of shift ideology to when it suits them. And it is that very kind of Disraelian approach to thing. I think I think it was the um, Beaconsfield approach, as obviously Disraeli was earlier, Beaconsfield, the Beaconsfield approach that one Conservative commentator identified it as, which is very clever politics. And for Starmer, it's such a difficult government to attack in that sense. It might just be where, where I get my media and social media from, but I didn't really see in the Labour conference many more faces other than uh, Keir Starmer. But one of the things with the Conservatives, I, I did think they were putting out other faces to do big speeches. So I think Priti Patel, uh, Liz Truss, Michael Gove, all featured in some of the stuff I, I was interested in at the time. And one of those, I think you just mentioned about levelling up. I thought that was quite still remained a big feature of the conference. It's very controversial on uh, a lot of the social media I look at about what's happening, but how do you think that's going? Did that come across at the conference for you as well, or is that just um, sound bites? I think it is sound bites. I think they've got some more definition than what it was previously. And like I said in a column uh, last weekend, sort of looking at the fact, you know, it's obviously for the North of England. Uh, Andy Burnham wants to work with Michael Gove on it because Michael Gove is seen as a very competent minister, and he probably is. Uh, and Andy Byrne obviously realises this is going to be a massive benefit to him. You saw, very interestingly, Northern MPs uh, and, and Metro mayors like Andy Street, um, Jake Berry, sort of quite sensible One Nation Tories, particularly, particularly, particularly Street in the West Midlands, who were pressuring the Prime Minister to give more of a definition because there is only to, there's only so much that these seats will take before they switch back. And I think it was the YouGov polling last week, which did worry the government because it said that their, their majority would be halved. And since you've got a kind of near incompetent opposition, that shows that you are kind of doing something wrong as a government. So you see the definitions coming out. Michael Gove, I think, said it's about giving power to local leadership. And William Hague in his column in the Times last week was saying, you know, that local localism uh, and decentralization is the key. Uh, so uh, so I, put it in my, I put it in my column saying, uh, quoting the spectator, that the Tories have a newfound love for devolution, which is obviously absolutely remarkable for all listeners of Hiraith. But it is something that I think tells you a lot about this 
this this government that is very England focused. I think leveling up is an English project. It really essentially means that they will give powers to metro mayors i think when it suits them and it probably is the right thing to do anyway but their definition of devolution and leveling up doesn't really apply to scotland and to cardiff because that would mean giving more powers to sturgeon and drakeford which would be something that boris johnson would find very dangerous simon hart of course has been very comfortable interpreting his own definition of leveling up which is to uh, override the, the the will of the synod on things like the m4 relief fraud and i think that isn't the way the party will go about it in England because they don't want to risk that standoff with Andy Burnham and even their own Conservative MPs and uh, Metro mayors again. So a bit more definition, I think, Kerry, but still more work to do. Surprise, surprise. In a similar vein, that Conservatives are the party of crime and punishment, and I think Priti Patel was rolled out last week. How are they not having a harder time around the subject of safety of women at the moment? It doesn't seem that they're taking, as you said to earlier, they're not picking up any of the kind of problems which a normal government would normally have to face. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting, actually. Obviously, after what happened to Sarah Everard in, in London, and obviously I, I spend most of my time in London, and I'm you know, a very proud member of the London Welsh community, but I have a younger sister is a student at UCL obviously I, I live with my girlfriend uh, and it's obviously a societal problem but I think obviously I think that particular event sort of brought it home in terms of how how there are clearly problems institutionally within within the police and obviously there's been lots of reports actually to do with um, I think there was a this the front page I think a couple of weeks ago from the national actually on on developments in Wales and, and the police service in Wales so what we've seen really is it's not really been a good enough response, I don't think, from, from Priti Patel and the Conservative Party for this, as you say, Kerry, for a party that has been so dominant on the issue of crime. I mean, you know, this party created the Met Police, you know, Robert Peel um, in the 19th century. But in the context of today's debates um, and what's been the revelations that have been coming out out of the police service, the question of Crest of Dick's future... I think, again, it's, it's it's a sign of this government, though, ironically, being in a very strong position for them to simply cruise through these issues. This, 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 I think, like you said, I, think, I don't know whether it was you, Matt, or, or Kerry that said it. This was a Labour government. They would be in so much trouble. And you can imagine the headlines in the Daily Express and the, the Mail, and to the, the credit of some of these tabloids, they've been very critical of the police. But you can imagine the political fallout. And you haven't really had that from, from Priti Patel or from Boris Johnson, you know, backing Crest to Dick totally. Again, it's a very curious one for, for this party and it's what its traditional ideology is. And move away from the politics. It's really significant for people's lives. And I think that's why elements of this government are, you know, very damaging. That I do think they are making the wrong decisions. And of course, not everyone would agree with me. Not everyone listening to the podcast would agree with me, in fact, which is fine. But I think on these sorts of issues, you know, you can put away the question of things like devolution and uh, justice, like devolving justice and all these different things. Stuff like this is, is kind of everyday life. And I think the government hasn't really realised the effects it will have on people either. It's quite interesting, isn't it, from a dynamic point of view, Theo, that weirdly the Conservative government acts like it's in opposition and puts the pressure on the Labour Party as though they're the ones in government. And I, it's, I've noticed this. Someone said it a few weeks ago, and it's just really stay with me. They they're constantly campaigning on things, saying we will, you know, if we we'll be able to do this without realizing, of course, that they are the party that's in power with an 80, 80 seat majority who could do anything they wanted to. Mm. Um, 
I want to go back a few weeks before the conference, if that's okay, Theo, um, with mind of the Tory reshuffle. What do you think the sort of rationale was behind that? Well, it was it was probably well overdue because I think the pandemic halted it, and it was a reset moment. I mean, it was built as, it was built as a reset moment, wasn't it? To the prime minister to get a new team in. Very much enjoyed Simon Hart's pre-reshuffle video. I think from Yes Minister, which he put out, which was quite a, a curious addition to the to the debate. But it was a reset moment, and I think some of the moves there were quite surprising. Obviously, it was showing all the headlines the next day about how clinical Boris is uh, to move Rab to justice. Sacking competent ministers, uh, then actually by Robert Buckland out of the cabinet, who was seen as a very competent and clever minister. I think you nailed it on the head there. It's this idea that there's always continuous change with this government, sort of always moving, always shifting. There's always a new, not necessarily moving to the news agenda, but very much setting the news agenda, as most, as lots of governments do, of course. I was watching the Blair and Brown documentary recently. I mean, they were actually far better than this government in setting the news agenda because of their spin doctors. Uh, we know how all of that ended up, so we'll have to see what happens. But it's... It's very clear that this government's always sort of thinking, you know, in the government grid, which I would love to see uh, what they've got planned all the time. You know, big levelling up speech, big reshuffle here, uh, massive amount of money for something that is, you know, maybe a bridge from Wales to Ireland. We don't know. It's, it's something it's always big projects happening with the prime minister. It's always it's amazing. Wow. You know, lots of bluster. And that reshuffle was another example. Uh, and there was, you know, Liz Truss has come to become foreign secretary and you mentioned her to do, you know, within the context of the party conference. And she's very popular within the party, which, I mean, I probably wouldn't have assumed, you know, a couple of years ago. So that's an interesting development. And it is, I think, about, as usual for the prime minister, this prime minister, to get very supportive people around his cabinet. And I'm very critical of, of that strategy. If you look at Thatcher's cabinet, they were not all supporters of Thatcher, and Mr. Thatcher was very happy to have them there to face her down. But I doubt there will be anyone doing a Michael Hessel time and storming out uh, of the cabinet over an issue to do with helicopters or anything. I mean, it won't be anything because they're all there. Yes, I mean, I can imagine the scenes. Yes, Prime Minister. Yes, yes, Mr. Johnson. You know, so um, yeah, it's a reset moment. But again, business as usual for the Prime Minister and surrounding himself with, I think, cabinet ministers who are not the same standard even of, of what we had with with Cameron Brown and Blair so you know very peculiar behavior this conference was a bit of the Boris show wasn't it alongside aspects of you know certain stunts like Boris cycling through the conference venue I found it very interesting that all the other cabinet members were given a sort of tiny spot in the sort of bustle of the exhibition space to make their speeches but Boris had this huge purpose-built arena like we're used to for leaders speeches but what do you think that tells us about the modern day Conservative Party and yeah, and possibly who comes next? Well, I mean, it's I think it's probably something that we've seen over time in politics, though. I mean, for any party, the very presidential style of giving the leader the emphasis. And so for so long, again, I mean, maybe to challenge the perception is just the Conservative Party. We can just look at the recent I mean, doubt doubt doubtless you obviously have this with them. Um, elections but you know for the SNP in Scotland Welsh Labour it's always all been about the leader I mean I wouldn't be able to name you I don't think half the Scottish cabinet uh to be honest with you I know a few key names but Sturgeon is the one that stands out and I would challenge any non-Welsh listeners we have to name half the Welsh government cabinet uh please don't ask me what the whole cabinet is now Matt because uh it'll be it'll be it'll be quite entertaining uh but it's it's a very strange one now that we're having 
I think in the Conservative Party more than others, you know, the cult of the leader and Boris really as as the, as the true, as the king, really. And I think you've got this sense, of course, you've got competent ministers. Gove is obviously clearly valued. You've got Sunak, who is the rising star, who is the heir. I think it's very hard to see who else would defeat Sunak in the future. But again, I think there will be, interestingly, perhaps a haul after the prime minister leaves, uh, because in a similar way to Mrs. Thatcher, although of course she had far more convictions and ideology behind her, I think the, the party never really recovered, even though they were still in power for, you know, seven years after she left. I think it is very interesting uh, to see that and what, you know, what will happen over the next few years. For me, I don't really see this government losing in a, this party losing an election this decade and I do see them and the ambition for the prime minister is to go on for 10 years like Mrs Thatcher and like Blair so that's a long time in politics and then you obviously have to then ask the question okay well obviously who comes after Boris Johnson but also who comes after Keir Starmer because you know if Keir Starmer loses the next election he will undoubtedly be gone so yes, you've got the cult of oh, there's lots of fist bumping going on just for the listeners to just to, just the listeners to confirm. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting one, Matt. I think it is very difficult to see a Conservative Party of the 20th, 21st century without Boris Johnson, which is quite a concerning prospect if you believe in a multi-party state of politics. So well, you will have to see. I, I'm having a little trouble hearing this and contributing, Theo. So bear with me. One of the issues at conference was actually someone with technology problems trying to get into the Welsh Senate. What, what was your take on the Gareth Davis inability to uh, vote in a crucial Senate vote? Well, I thought it was rather shocking. Um, I was on Times Radio yesterday talking a bit about it, and I've seen lots of stuff on social media about it. Obviously, I cannot confirm or deny many of the statements that have been made, but and as to where Gareth Davis was, he was obviously at Tory party conference, but he was trying to log in, couldn't get into Zoom, and then Jones was trying to pass her personal number across. It was just absolutely abysmal. And I think it is just really embarrassing for not only Gareth Davis, of course, and then all coming out saying, you know, disaster for free speech and all this, this, this has been pushed through the synod. Yeah, I really don't, I really don't buy that. I think this is a really embarrassing moment for the Welsh the Conservative Party, and I'm sure many sensible figures uh, within the party will be disappointed that it was one of their members who uh, essentially cost the opposition a massive, massive defeat on the Welsh Labour government. Uh, and I actually, you know, can understand why, you know, the very lots of principal people, you know, implied coming in the Welsh Conservative Party who were against these uh, COVID passports. And, you know, for me, I can totally see their concerns. And then when you've got the First Minister going on television shows saying there's massive vulnerabilities in the system, you know, and then there's an opportunity to get, you know, vote down the proposals as they are, they're squandered. You know, as for Mr Davis, who I, who I don't know, uh, I think it, obviously he will be uh, hopefully considering uh, what his actions are and in future possibly uh, being a bit more uh, punctual with his attendance because obviously it is slightly funny, but also it's not funny because this is a this is a serious politics that we have. We want politicians to turn up and vote. Um, you know, I don't think there'll be much of it in the future, but I think it is a bit of a bit of a scandal really than that it's come to this and we still obviously don't know all the facts I certainly don't know all the facts but there's plenty of rumours being circulated so 
Yeah, Carrie. I mean, I think it was actually it was quite disappointing actually because I think it was it's not really how any Senate member you know we want them to behave. We want to make sure that they prioritise getting on that vote more than anything, and I think that's the duty of every Senate member, no matter what political party they are. Yeah, it is. It's disappointing because it, it is you know the impact having on. I do find it deeply ironic that when he made his joke People's- that he couldn't connect, he actually had a really good connection, and now when he's actually trying to ask a question. He's got dodgy internet connection. Yeah. Really. <laughs> Can I? I don't know. Am I there? Am I there? You're there now, yeah. I'm going to be, gonna be quick. I'll get my question about Welsh Conservatives. So, Gareth Davis obviously... He's gone again. Oh, no. Come on, Kerry. Come on, ah, you can do take it. over. Looking at the Welsh Conservatives, now Theo, mm. where do you think they fit into the, the Boris Johnson show that is the UK Conservative Party? Obviously... Andrew Artie Davis has stepped back for a little while, and I think everyone yeah. here wishes him very well in his yeah. recovery. But where do you think the Welsh Conservatives fit in? Artie is quite a strong figurehead for the party. He's quite a strong voice for the party. How do you think the Welsh Conservative voice is getting through when, essentially, their, their biggest cheerleader now is Simon Hart? Yeah, it's very difficult, actually. And I think the, the party needs to be a very constructive force in the Senate, not being Boris's block in the Senate, as I think I've dubbed them before. You know, it's, it is very difficult. And I think too often in the pandemic, I actually think they shot themselves in the foot quite a lot by being so negative uh, deliberately against the First Minister. And I don't mean that in terms of you have to agree with the, the, the Welsh Labour government always, uh, like Keir Starmer did in, in Westminster, I think, with um, some of, too often with some of the policies of the Prime Minister, uh, when they were perhaps ill-judged as that Public Health England report suggest some of the mistakes the government has made but too often the party has been reactive uh, in the Senate. I have an interview with a few different figures actually for being the opposition in Wales uh, for the Institute of Welsh Affairs magazine coming up and I sort of describe it as the worst job in politics to oppose Welsh Labour uh, because it's basically a continuous job for years. Um, and I spoke to, to, to Lord uh, uh, Nick Bourne for that. And he had some very interesting comments about, you know, some advice, you know, how to be leader of the opposition. Um, and, you know, I think it is something that he picked up on that it probably would have been better for the Welsh Conservative Party to be a bit more supportive and constructive at times. And that's how they should be. You know, I think if you look back in the early noughties on the devolution question, Nick Bourne was a very different voice to perhaps how Andrew Artie Davis and other members of the, of the opposition front bench are, you know, on debates around the future of Wales. You know, for Simon Hart, he, I think he said over the last few days that he's had to bite his tongue about devolved questions. And you know what? I mean, come on, can we just you know grow up a bit here? Because I think this is a really important debate, you know, in how we engage with politicians in Westminster and Cardiff Bay. It's all about making sure you can make it constructive. And levelling up can work, by the way, in Wales. If, you know, it can work in Greater Manchester. It doesn't, you know, why can't it work in Cardiff? You need the collaboration and the cooperation. Uh, It needs to, I think, as I've lectured uh, continuously into the abyss for, it needs to be more constructive as a party within the Synod and willing to engage on Welsh issues, you know, painting a different picture to the Welsh Labour government. It's very, very hard to oppose Mark Drakeford. But it is there is a way to do it when not necessarily taking the side of the UK government all the time. And I think too often the party has continued to do that. They've got five years to 
to reassess their position. Obviously, wishing Andrew Arty Davis, uh, you know, all the best for his recovery. Uh, but of course, in the future, I think we might see a change of leadership within the Conservative group in the Senate before the next election. Uh, and I think that will probably determine uh, the future of the party. But I think obviously, just because of recent events, I think probably too early to tell as to the future shape of the party, but it certainly needs to, I think, behave in a slightly different way than it has done over the last 12 to 18 months, uh, because I don't think that has positioned them as an alternative party of government, uh, which they did do very successfully from about 2005 to 2011. I'm back, gents. I, my, my technological link joke spectacularly backfired there, really, didn't it? Uh, before we leave Wales and Welsh Conservatives, Theo, yeah. you know, Paul Davis, I think, is interim for Andrew R.T. Davis. But Rich, Matt and I were talking about who might be the next Welsh Conservative ah, yes. leader, who are the runners and the riders. And um, I think we had some particular favourites and some of the, the nicer characters we've come across. But, you know, would you like to contribute to who you think it might be? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, actually. I think you've got a lot of younger members there. And I think... You know, it's uh, you've got younger members with different portfolios, and I think right now they would be too young to take the leadership. But I'm just a few different members for you, you know, uh, Sam Kurtz, Natasha Askar, you know, very and those two are very good example actually. Very different strands of Welsh Conservatism, you know, one southeast Wales, uh, one from a farming background, one from sort of Newport area, two very different stories, uh, one Welsh speaking, one more, one not. I mean, I think that's that's, that's amazing kind of diversity there of two possible future leaders uh, but again it's a very very young and I think you know the party now looking at those kinds of politicians that I see as quite progressive and um, uh, sort of sens sensible conservatives if I can say it like that who I think you know do value things like the Welsh language they've got a, uh, a sort of sound idea on, on the economics they've got in Sam's case you know great understanding of rural Wales which obviously is a is a is a is a is a heartbeat constituency uh, nationwide for for Welsh Conservatives and somewhere they really can knock the Lib Dems out and Labour haven't really got a leg to stand on with the NVZ regulations, only really competing with Plaid Cymru really. So you know those are a couple, but I think to be honest with you, I still think the future of the Welsh Conservative Party is as a coalition party. I I don't think anything will change my mind unless you do have such an enigmatic leader like Boris, essentially. I think this is the case for most parties in the world. Unless you have a leader that can transform your fortunes, you kind of do have to rely on either terrible opposition or coalition politics. And right now, obviously, there's lots of talent in the Welsh Conservative Party, but there isn't a Boris in a good way uh, within their within their ranks. Um, you know, Mark Drakeford is not a Boris, but there's different reasons why he won the election. I still think by 2026, you'll be looking, you know, if you really want to be want to see a Conservative Party in government in Wales as a coalition, and I think, to be perfectly frank, obviously, I don't think with the current constitutional question that applied Cymru and the Welsh Conservative Party would ever consider it. So you're looking at a possibility of the Welsh Conservatives, you know, genuinely never getting into government in Wales. I think because of where we are. Um, I think the First Minister said in Morning Star yesterday. Um, I never normally read the Morning Star, I'd be surprised, but I actually did read it for the first time, just to read that interview. And, you know, saying there's, there's very likely to be an independence referendum in Scotland, and I think that does change the picture in Wales, and that means 
the Welsh Conservatives will have to, you know, adapt and so will Plaid Cymru. And that means a marriage of convenience, of political convenience is unlikely to happen. So we can sit here and talk about leaders all we want, but really the question should be who's going to be the next Labour leader after Mark Drakeford, as we've discussed so many times before. Uh, I mean, I'm going to agree with you on your uh, evaluation of the Welsh Conservative leaders. I think there's a, a number of very interesting prospects coming through the ranks, right? Um, I mm. think you're still likely to end up with someone maybe in the Russell George yeah. sort of mould as the next as the next one. But I think you're right. I think I can definitely see uh, Sam Kurtz uh, as a as a future Welsh Conservative leader. But now moving on, as you uh, you know, as to to useless opposition, <laughs> how do you think the Welsh? How do you think the Conservative conference messaging compared to that of the Labour Party conference messaging, which uh, we dealt with last week and um, we were, oh, me anyway, I wasn't overly keen on the, the, the outcome of, of that conference from uh, selling yourself as a potential party of government. Yeah, I think it's hard because you had, I mean, we talked about the sort of the boosterism from Boris and you just don't get that from Starmer. I quite liked his, I quite liked his heckling uh, rebukes just because it, was, it did remind me of Kinnock back in the 80s. And I think it was that kind of conference, to be honest with you. I think it was a, it was a moment where Starmer, or as so he thought, had to stand up to the to the left wingers and essentially try and cull them from the party. Uh, and he's relatively, I mean, he's caused a lot of disquiet, but he's done it relatively successfully. I don't think Keir Starmer will ever be prime minister. And there was lots of briefing going on before, you know, to, to do with Wes Streeting, for example, as, as the next leader. And he was sort of going around trying to, you know, cultivate some sort of support. But the the, the, the messaging from the Labour conference, again, as as always, I mean, as always, most of the time it's been inward looking and it's always been speaking to the party. And sometimes you do have to speak to the party to speak to the country. But again, when you've got this relentless campaigning government against you, it's not necessarily an easy fix to start. You know, you've got to speak to the country eventually. You can't just keep going on and on and on about your own about your own party. I think that was the, the general summary of it. And I, I wrote something before the conference, the, the Labour conference, saying obviously there's many lessons that Mark Drakeford give uh, Keir Starmer. And uh, we saw a bit more significance to, to Mark Drakeford uh, this time round than has been given to previous Welsh, uh, Welsh Labour leaders. But still, I, I, don't think, I don't think Keir Starmer really, like Boris Johnson, actually knows what he's for and does have political difficulties ahead of him, but they're far more grave, I think, than Boris Johnson because he hasn't got an 80-seat majority, and there are many in this party, you know, might be people such as yourself, Matt, but more broadly on the backbenches that are uh, splitting and are, are very divided. So I think at least everyone in the Conservative Party are totally united behind the leader, if just for electoral reasons. Uh, so it is incredibly difficult, and what I thought was so interesting was that the move from Mark Drakeford to try and create, you know, a quasi-independent Welsh Labour Party, which obviously has been speculated for a while. He just, you know, he wants to make sure that our discussions around the devolution settlement, which obviously Keir Starmer doesn't share, by the way, is reflected within the internal Labour Party structure as well, which is a very convenient cloak. I think that was very telling, and I think it was uh, another good example of a leader, by contrast, who has a very firm grip on his party in Wales and understands what his grassroots members wants, uh, want and also what his his elected politicians want as well. So very, very different fortunes for the Welsh and English Labour parties, I think. 
You really have been reading the Morning Star, haven't you? Conrad? I know, I know. I can't. Can you believe it? I mean, I don't know whether there'll be any other interviews for me to. Whether you guys do a, a collaboration with the Morning Star, <laughs> you know, I think my, I think my, my, my father from the valleys, uh, from I grew up in Mardi, which obviously I think was known previously as Little Moscow. So uh, there is that burning con- communism within me. I just haven't found it yet, and I haven't expressed it yet. So well, maybe one day. <laughs> um, well, yeah, going back to, to red flags, I was a little tough last week on Keir's handling of the question of the union yeah. at a Labour Party conference. But how do you think Boris and the Conservatives dealt with that question at their, their conference? The Starmer's definition of saving the union or strategy of saving the union about giving blood and things. It was a bit bizarre, really. And it's just it was just very strange. Uh, and obviously the tweets of Mark Drakeford just giving a bit of um, a sideshow to all that. I just thought it was amazing. Uh, going back and tweeting out Welsh blood, NHS Welsh blood policy on Twitter. It was crazy. Um, so uh, lots of lots of giggles in Cate's Park, clearly, after that. Um, but, I mean, again, the, the, the Conservative Party strategy is you know, levelling up in England and probably devolution of power to local government, local councils, metro mayors. That doesn't solve the question in Scotland and in Wales. And they're clearly very firm. Alistair Jack essentially said there's about 36 different criteria for a referendum in Scotland and it's going to happen in about 50 years, uh, which is not sustainable. So they've, they've kind of come to terms. They haven't come to terms with the fact that the support is still there. They're hoping Sturgeon essentially runs at a time and things catch up with her. Uh, but we've seen with the Salmond saga that that hasn't necessarily impacted her significantly. She gave an interview, uh, the Scottish Minister gave an interview to the Financial Times, I think, earlier this week or on the weekend, was saying she's got plenty of time. You know, Time's on her, her side as well. And I think really you're going to see Michael Gove uh, continuing in some way to shape that. I mean, he's focusing on levelling up. Don't think, as the way at the time of speaking, that we do have a devolution minister. I might be totally wrong, but I think the the prime minister jetted off to Marbella before he appointed one. Um, my, my understanding is he remains minister for the union, but that yeah. Gove is handling all the sorts of intergovernmental relations between the UK government and the devolution. So yeah, so nothing. My has, understanding of it. So nothing has changed. And while Boris is in, in Marbs, which I, by the way, recommend, is a wonderful place. As I told Derry Floyd in the weekend, I can see him drinking, tap, having tapas and Benahabis uh, with, the, with the Prime Minister. It's, it's clear that, the, that the, the Prime Minister has got no time at all for Celtic devolution, no interest in powers. We saw you know, the refusal to, to give any uh, devolution of justice to, uh, to Wales recently. From, from the UK government, uh, there's absolutely no interest in doing it. So the policy hasn't changed with the, the Conservative Party in England, and it's still, you know, again, an English nationalism competing against the Welsh and Scottish nationalism. Uh, very different kinds, of course. Ironically, the Welsh form is the only form of unionism which I think is practically and theoretically workable, if by a, you know, if by a thread. But yeah, I don't think much has changed. It's still not very well thought through. When I interviewed Martrick for last, I think it was in... Um, I think it was in June or July for the Spectator. You know, he he was very clear that you know he quite likes working with Michael Gove, quite a sensible, competent, intelligent minister. But I think, in his own words, you know, Boris Johnson is just awful. And I think that is everything you need to know about relations around the union at the minute. You talked a bit about time running out for 
political leaders, you know, you've given an indication in your earlier answers that you don't think time's going to run out on the Conservative Party in the UK yeah. anytime soon. But do you think they have any weaknesses? And do you think, how long do you think things can keep going wrong uh, and it not have any impact on their, their polling or their levels of support across the UK? I think that's, I think that's a good point in the sense that things can't keep going wrong. They just can't because eventually things will catch up with them. I think, I think they it will. There's always, if you notice in some commentaries, there's always a crisis where, you know, someone says this is the end for the, the prime minister or then someone else says, oh, this is not the end. Don't count them out yet. And we'll keep seeing those at each crisis. I mean, to, I mean, to be fair, the situation we're in now is pretty terrible. And the fact that they're not dropping like a concrete block in the polls is quite remarkable. But there will come a time, I think, where, I mean, if there is another crisis, crisis after crisis, if it, would, if it was to be a COVID-related issue, for example, the public inquiry, which we can expect to be quite damning, if anything, if this report from the House of Commons, uh, House, of, House, of, House of Parliament's committees is anything to indicate. But it'll be the same, I think, for every government. So I think it, it'll go on. They will go on and on, as Mrs. Thatcher uh, said. But there will come a time, I think, as an election. It might be more of a competent Labour leader that brings them down like it was, you know, like it was Blair in, in 97, which, um, you know, which will do it. I'm obviously not advocating for another Tony Blair, so I don't upset probably about three quarters of the Hirai's listenership, uh, if I can stereotype. But yeah, it, I think it, it, it will run out. That is the biggest weakness, that it's the, it's the actual handling of the policy, and that will catch up with them, I think. With all this in mind, Theo, how likely do you think it is that we're going to see an election before 2024? Oh God! I hope not. Uh, it's just uh, I don't know. I think it'll depend again on the polls. It might depend on uh, you know what happens to Starmer as well. I don't think he'll go before another election, but I think you know the prime minister will want to make progress. And 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 for example, if that YouGov poll was anything to go by last week, you know, and losing half the majority, they no election will be called then. I think also it's something that is. That is quite interesting if we look at, you know, all the, you know, all the policies, debates and the personality eruptions. Uh, it'll be, you know, at the moment, I think, when we might least expect it. Uh, I don't think the Prime Minister is probably in any mood to do it now. I think they want to see the COVID recovery out. I saw a report just before we came on that I think Sunak's going to balance the budget by 2025. So they probably will try and stick to that 2024 date. But again, it might be, you know, things like the Scottish independence polling and stuff like that might influence, not as if they're going to win any seats in Scotland, but all of those things might play into it. I don't see an election happening before. But again, a week is a very long time uh, in politics. So another two years, I don't have sort of fear to think what what we will all look like in two years after the intensity of the last the last year and the last 18 months in Welsh politics but I don't see I don't think we'll see one it is it is a very interesting time but I think you know the Labour Party going back to your to some of our points should be very concerned uh, because they've only got two years at least or at the most to get the, get their act in order and you know there's still the possibility that Keir Starmer might not be the leader by the next election if things are anything over the last few months to go by so very interesting times Theo Davis Lewis Chief Political Commentator at the National Wales thank you very much pleasure as always to have you on if people want to hear more from you where can they find you on Twitter uh, T Davis Lewis wonderful and if you have enjoyed what you've heard this evening please do not forget to find us on Medium at Here I Blog Cymru on Facebook at Here I Blog Cymru and on Twitter at Here I Blog Jeff Boys.
Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.